The launch date is approaching for the smallest spacecraft hitching a ride on the most powerful rocket ever built by NASA. SWRI's first CubeSat mission will analyze space weather. What is a CubeSat and why do space scientists want to learn more about conditions in space? That's next on this episode of Technology Today. We live with technology, science, engineering, and the results of innovative research every day. Now, let's understand it better. You're listening to the Technology Today podcast, presented by Southwest Research Institute. Transcripts and photos for this episode and all episodes are available at podcast.swri.org. Hello and welcome to Technology Today, I'm Lisa Pena. The CubeSat to study solar particles or CUSP mission is expected to launch on August 29, 2022. It will be a secondary payload aboard NASA's Space Launch System, the most powerful rocket NASA has ever built. The CubeSat will study space weather, specifically solar particles. Our guest today is SWRI space scientist, Dr. Mahir Desai, principal investigator of CUSP. Mahir, the CubeSat launch is coming up. It must be a busy time for you, so we appreciate you taking time to discuss this mission with us today. Uh, thank you, Lisa. I'm very happy to be uh, be here with you and discuss this uh, exciting mission. So let's start with understanding this unique spacecraft. What is a CubeSat? CubeSats are small satellites that come in standard forms. Um, they, they, the forms are 1U, 2U, 3U, or 6U where each U is a unit uh, of cube about 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters uh, volume. Until about 2014, CubeSats were, these small satellites were funded at universities by NSF for research, training, and educational purposes. From about 2015, NASA started funding CubeSats for research, training, and technology demonstration purposes. Uh, the Southwest Institute uh, Research Institute proposed the CUSP mission uh, for studying solar particles, which was one of the first ones that NASA selected for flight development in 2015. And what were CubeSats used for uh, by, what did universities use CubeSats for? Mainly for uh, training their undergraduates and graduates and educational purposes. They also did some research with it, but uh, the NSF, the, the funding amount was not sufficient to do uh, cutting edge research. It was more of training a training facility, as it were, uh, for, for training the next generation of space scientists and engineers. All right, so definitely some new uses for CubeSats today, and we'll get into that in a minute. But what are the advantages of a CubeSat? CubeSats are really modular in, in the sense that you basically buy a, a frame and you put uh, your systems in it that, that you want to fly. Uh, of course, that makes it... Uh, uh, you can produce them in mass uh, and without too much cost. Uh, they're also uh, low low weight, and launching launching objects in space is very expensive. Launch, the launch costs get inevitably higher for the heavier satellites. Uh, this makes uh, CubeSats with each weigh about one U one U weighs about four and a half kilograms. Very very cost effective. Uh, they also have very standardized uh, power systems, uh, avionics, 
uh, attitude control and and all of the subsystems are are you can buy them off the shelf so there are companies that that have built them so that makes them extremely low low cost um, and low risk as well at the same time and they can be launched in bulk uh, many many satellites can be launched all at the same time or uh, one after another which really makes failure of a single cubesat very very risky if the mission involves a a a, a, suite, a suite of cubesats or a fleet of cubesats all right, but overall, uh, they are easy to build, low cost, low weight, and for the most part, low risk. And so these CubeSats have a big job ahead um, with the CUSP mission to analyze space weather. So how do these CubeSats work? How will they analyze space weather? Um, not all CubeSats are designed to analyze space weather. Some are designed to to um, just for technology purposes and other research purposes. But CUSP is actually designed to measure solar particles and the interplanetary magnetic fields that, that cause space weather. Uh, these are these originate from the sun uh, and 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 during very active periods uh, when the sun has a 11 year cycle where the activity peaks if you uh, if you will the uh, coronal mass ejections and solar flares occur at the peak uh, of, of about a thousand per day, um, a thousand per year. Sorry, uh, so they're they're very uh, they're very very powerful explosions on the sun that can that can cause adverse effects. Uh, so the cusp will be out in interplanetary space uh, in a in an orbit that is uh, very similar to Earth, uh, but it will be uh, moving away from Earth. So it will directly measure these solar particles and interplanetary magnetic fields that that are responsible for increasing uh, the radiation hazards in, in near Earth environment. Okay, and aside from solar particles, there are other types of space weather. So what is space weather? What What is classified as space weather? Space weather is mainly, for, for our purposes, um, the space weather originates entirely from the sun. It's, it's not coming from elsewhere. It's, it's just solar explosions that create uh, uh, solar flares and coronal mass ejections, and those increase the radiation levels near Earth in terms of X-rays, gamma rays, uh, particles, relativistic particles. And those uh, are, are what we what we want to try to understand and, and predict. Uh, mostly this is electromagnetic radiation and charged particles uh, that can af affect human activity and technology as well. As I said, you know, space weather comes in in, in three forms, X-rays and gamma rays from flares, uh, the particle radi uh, solar energetic particles, which is the, uh, the scientific goal of this mission, or radiation from flares and coronal mass ejections. And then finally, you get those blobs of plasma, which is uh, known as coronal mass ejections that hit and interact with the Earth's magnetic field and what and cause uh, what's known as geomagnetic storms. So. Uh, all these all these effects are are driven by the sun. Um, there are uh, during and these occur mainly during the height of solar activity. As I said, the peak of the 11-year cycle. During the minimum, uh, there is space weather, but it is not as 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 dangerous as as what you get during the height of the activity. You mentioned you know some of the adverse effects of space weather, but can you specifically tell us like what? What are the consequences of space weather uh, when it affects Earth? What would we experience here if right. um, space weather impacts us? Right. So X-rays can can increase uh, 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 
and can affect our communications, our GPS communications, our satellite communications. Uh, solar energetic particles can interact with our uh, uh, electronics and cause single event upsets, what's known as single event upsets. Uh, if the radiation is strong enough and uh, very, very sustained for days, which it can be uh, over a period of days, then the radiation in the polar caps uh, increases by quite a lot. And astronauts or airline crew can, who are doing some activity on the ISS or elsewhere could uh, uh, get their, receive their annual dose in, in, in hours instead of, instead of the entire year. Uh, in fact, polar flying air, airlines have also been diverted uh, and delayed because of these radiation storms uh, happening in, in the near, in the polar capped regions. Uh, and finally, when the coronal mass ejections come in, they interact with the Earth's magnetic field, as I said, and increase the geomagnetic, uh, the geomagnetic activity um, and what they could affect pipelines, they could affect transmission, uh, 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 well, pipelines, they could also affect um, um, power grids and they cause outages. In fact, in 1980, sometime in the mid 80s, uh, there was a power outage due to a solar storm in Quebec that knocked out most of Canada's power, the, the uh, most of the east coast of Canada's uh, power, power grid for, for a few hours. So there's there's many many effects that we we know that, that are happening because of space weather. So understanding space weather is important, and understanding how to uh, how to counteract these effects is uh, important. Also, so you know our daily life could be affected by these events, as you just mentioned. Uh, so we talked about the launch date for the CubeSat mission to study solar particles or CUSP. It's approaching on August 29th. Um, so tell us more about CUSP, which is SWRI's first CubeSat mission. Um, you know, what does this mission hope to accomplish? Yes, yeah, so uh, a little bit of history. CUSP was originally selected by NASA as a 3U CubeSat to fly in low Earth orbit or LEO, um, with only uh, the Institute's Superthermal Ion Sensor to measure solar particles over the poles. Uh, however, one year later, uh, NASA's Space Launch System, or SLS, provided an opportunity for six U CubeSats to be launched into the interplanetary medium, which is ideally the correct location of where we want to make these uh, solar, solar particle measurements. Um, and this enhances our science return uh, because we are making measurements where we really need to make them without being filtered by the Earth's magnetic field. Uh, so the cusp being proposed and uh, and and was then selected to upgrade to a six U, and we added two instruments to complete the full range of measurements that we need to understand how particles are accelerated by solar flares and coronal mass ejections. In addition, uh, one of the instruments is a magnetometer, so we measure the magnetic fields of the coronal mass ejections that come about uh, one or two days later and impact uh, impact the Earth. So we we have a, a great set of measurements coming up. So if you can kind of break it down for us. So you get these measurements back. Um, what does this type of data from solar particles reveal? What is it telling you about how we can protect ourselves from the adverse effects of solar weather? Right. So uh, the, the main questions that we want to answer is if a solar flare occurs near the sun, uh, and it, it's associated with coronal mass ejection, will we get affected at Earth uh, in an hour or two hours or three days later uh, over the period of time? And right now we have no means of 
of of telling whether a, a solar flare, even though it may be the most powerful solar flare you have seen, will impact Earth in any 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 kind any sense. So what we want to do is to we want to measure uh, these particles to tell us info to give us critical information about um, three three in three areas. First of all. Uh, what is the material that is actually accelerated in these solar particles, the large uh, events? Uh, second is how exactly is this material selected um, and accelerated to higher energy? So the mechanisms of how the particles are accelerated. And finally, how does this particle, this accelerated material get to Earth and, 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 and then finally impact us? So all these uh, uh, Science questions are are relatively still being explored, even though we've been making these measurements for nearly 30, 40 years. Um, it, it's they're still very much unknown, and we are nowhere near uh, uh, the 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 way where we can actually make reliable and uh, reliable and accurate predictions of of the of the of their impact on 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 our on our society. So that's that's what we want to learn. Okay, so it's helping us get a clearer picture of what the issues are and how we can avoid um, major problems. Yeah, so uh, for instance, uh, for instance, if for instance, uh, there's a flare occurred at the sun and we know within an hour, this is going to impact, it's going to impact Earth and cause increased radiation levels. So at that, that point, if astronauts are doing uh, extra vehicular activity on the lunar surface, they can go into a shielded area. Uh, same thing with the ISS, uh, ISS astronauts as well on the International Space Station. They could also uh, go into an area back into where they can be shielded and protect themselves from getting uh, getting a radiation dose, uh, increasing their radiation dose. So that kind of thing is what we want. But we are nowhere near uh, at, at even even after, as I said, 30 years of measurements. Okay, so the CubeSats are not just being launched into space on their own. Uh, they are actually hitching a ride to space. Um, so tell us more about the CubeSats, the CUSP mission's destination uh, and how it will get, how this spacecraft, these the CubeSats will um, get there. So CUSP will escape Earth. It's, a, it's, a, it's in an Earth escape orbit. It will be ejected uh, before the Orion spacecraft uh, does a lunar flyby, and uh, the cusp will, uh, if necessary, perform a small maneuver to avoid impacting the moon. After the lunar flyby, cusp will enter into a heliocentric or sun-centric orbit, just like all the rest of the planets in the solar system, including Earth. So basically, it will be at the location of Earth, which is one astronomical unit, uh, same location, but it will be drifting away slowly from Earth, either ahead of us, ahead of Earth, or behind behind us. And this gives an ideal position, ideal situation, uh, for us to make these measurements uh, in the interplanetary medium. All right, and it it, it will be aboard the space launch system, yeah. which is uh, the most powerful rocket ever built by NASA. How did CUSP end up on this um, rocket? And can you tell us a little bit more about the the rocket itself? Sure. So uh, the the rocket is is as I said, you know, the most powerful rocket that uh, NASA has ever built. Uh, it took a long time to build, and it cost a lot of a lot of dollars because we want to make sure that this is this rocket can be used for uh, future manned missions, and that makes you know the the quality and the and the and the uh, workmanship to be really uh, on on 
uh, of a very high quality, basically, so that you can't have any mistakes. You don't want to have uh, uh, any mistakes like that. So um, the way we got on that was uh, headquarters, NASA headquarters uh, decided that this can be uh, an, an ideal opportunity to do some lunar science, some interplanetary science, and they had an ESPA ring, which is just a, a ring that can hold the 13 of these CubeSats, and we are one of them. So uh, each uh, SLS or NASA gave each science division one slot to to fly on this on this SLS and we got selected to do so because our uh, our science was greatly enhanced by us uh, getting into an orbit that that is in in the interplanetary medium so in some sense cusp is really a a pathfinder because there has been uh, never been an interplanetary uh, CubeSat mission, although there was one at Mars, but it hitched a ride with the with a mother spacecraft, and it's 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 still making measurements at in interplanetary space. So, in in for the heliophysics division of for solar and space weather, CUSP is the first uh, first mission to to do that uh, so to, that to make measurements in the interplanetary medium. Yeah, so that was a victory in itself, getting chosen by NASA to move forward with this mission. What did that moment feel like when you got word back that you would, in fact, be aboard the SLS? It means that, uh, <laughs> that but see, when you propose something, you know, you, you hope you win. Uh, but when you actually win, you realize suddenly that you got to do the work now, right? Yeah. So <laughs> excitement as well as nerves and everything else that comes with it, you know, all emotions are are... Are, are are on the table at that point, um, but you know we we managed to get the work done. We had um, the challenges during the final year because COVID hit, and we still had to do our testing and uh, and 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 integration and assembly and and all that, and then deliver it uh, during COVID time. So we delivered in April 2021. Our original, originally we were supposed to, SLS was supposed to go in 2017, 2018, but due to the launch delays uh, over, the, over the number number of years, we've uh, we basically are going to launch this year, hopefully. All right, so you got through the challenges and you're here now, um, a lot riding on this, uh, on this mission. Um, so the launch date's August 29th. That is the um, expected launch date, however, if... Uh, that if there are issues that day for whatever reason, there are a couple other dates that um, NASA is looking at to launch. Will you go over that, how that works? If August 29th isn't your date, uh, what happens next? Uh, the next date is uh, to be September 2nd, and the one after that uh, is September 5. After that, I think they have to create a new launch window, and it might be postponed to October if they don't make on, make it on one of those launches. Any fact, any number of factors can can influence that that uh, delay. Uh, for instance, weather could be bad that day. Uh, there could be some software glitches, um, and and and, I'm, uh, and everything didn't really go as well as uh, they wanted to in their test run. In the, uh, so you know, uh, there's a number of ways because ultimately you don't you don't want to you know blow up on the launch pad uh, and have a failure that way because that would be that would be quite disastrous. So um, I I am planning to be there at the launch. Uh, I don't have a role except as a spectator. And, and um, all, all uh, we'll have a lot of nerves, bitten nails. Yeah, um, I can imagine. <laughs> uh, it's a big deal for you and your team. So, of course, we'll be rooting for you and the CUSP mission. Um, I'm sure it'll be successful. 
Um, I did want to talk about your planning for this mission. I, I know you mentioned it a little bit earlier, avoiding an impact with the moon. So planning this mission did include an intense launch analysis to do just that, to avoid hitting the moon. There was a real chance of that happening. How did you discover that could be an issue and how will you avoid it? So in order to get into the heliocentric orbit or the sun-centric orbit in an Earth escape orbit, we we were originally uh, scheduled to be deployed on uh, after the lunar flyby. Uh, but uh, SLS uh, informed us that um, the, the Orion capsule and the module might be too cold for any deployment beyond uh, before after the lunar flyby. So we had to uh, make a decision and, and get deployed at, at, at an earlier stage before the lunar flyby. NASA also told us that you know there was a chance, although we will follow the same ballistic trajectory that the capsule uh, would, but there was a, a, a chance that we could hit the moon. Uh, so the mission operate the mission operations team at GSFC uh, did a detailed orbital analysis and and basically they will send a command to CUSP to execute a lunar avoidance maneuver. Um, this will basically raise the perigee uh, of of uh, of of the uh, of the spacecraft as it goes around the moon. So it will still go around the moon and it will still hopefully get into the heliocentric orbit that we want want to get into. So the analysis is done. Um, we are confident that we will not hit the moon, um, and uh, hopefully uh, we will be able to talk about the successes of the mission. All right, and tell us a little bit more about the complex scientific instruments um, CUSP is using to collect data, because those, those instruments themselves are uh, scientific wonders. Right. So, first of all, they're all miniaturized, uh, you know, the size you can fit in your palm. Um, and um, they are extremely sensitive instrument instruments to to be flying on this mission because one of them is as uh, as uh, I suggested earlier is that is the suprathermal ion sensor or SIS which is uh, developed using our internal research funds and also funding from NASA as well. Uh, these this sensor will measure the particles that the material that is being accelerated. If you recall our early conversation. Uh, that we want to find out what's being accelerated, how it's being accelerated, and how does it get to us. So uh, what's being accelerated will be measured by uh, our, uh, our institute sensor, which is the suprathermal ion sensor. How it's got accelerated will be measured by the MERIT sensor, which is from Goddard Space Flight Center. These measure the high energy particles that, uh, that increase the radiation hazards for astronauts and satellites, as I discussed earlier. And finally, the uh, Jet Propulsion Lab's magnetometer is basically the magnetic field that measures the magnetic field along which these particles travel. So it, they, that, that will enable us to uh, figure out how the particles get to Earth. So we are addressing all three uh, of the big questions that that I uh, pointed out to uh, earlier when we talked about what what's actually needed to make progress in this area. All right, so we talked about the advantages of CubeSats, but um, any roadblocks or challenges in using this very unique and small satellite for such a big job? Yeah, so um, to fit a fully functioning spacecraft with all subsystems and, and the three instruments in the small size, which is also known as form factor, is challenging. And of course, it's like fitting 10 pounds of potatoes in a five pound bag, right? 
Uh, other challenges are that the commercial of the shelf parts uh, that I talked about earlier that are advantages in in many cases where you just want to fly in the low Earth orbit require modifications and customization for for flying uh, somewhere that they're not used to going uh, like we are for cusp in interplanetary space. Uh, budgets are also also low. Uh, we can't prototype and test parts or build and test engineering models. So we just have to go straight to flight parts and there are challenges with that, as you can imagine. Um, and finally, as a secondary payload, we are really at the mercy of the primary payload, which in this case is the Orion capsule, uh, which is unmanned in this case, but it will be future. Uh, there'll be, it'll carry astronauts to the moon in, in the future. Uh, because of the manned rated program uh, nature of the Artemis 1 mission, which is what it's called, um, uh, SLS had a more stricter requirements program, which meant more analysis, more testing, more documentation, which of course, you know, we were uh, uh, not initially budgeted for. But NASA headquarters has been very, very helpful in, 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 in uh, helping us out with our cost and schedule all the way. Uh, without their support, you know, we're, we, we would be uh, in, in trouble. So just to clarify for our listeners, um, so Artemis 1 is the NASA mission. Um, the Space Launch System rocket, the most powerful rocket we've been talking about, is the spacecraft being used in the Artemis 1 mission. Right. And, um, and our CubeSats are hitching a ride on the Space Launch System aboard that rocket that is uh, part of this Artemis mission. Uh, yeah. But our mission is called CUSP, so it's a... Yeah mission within a mission yes it's a secondary payload there are 13 of us in the in the uh, hitch to the to the rocket between the rocket and the orion capsule or the orion module and we will be going with the orion module and then we'll be uh, they'll separate the s ring and then eject us or deploy us all right so this is swri's first but not last cubesat mission what does the future hold for cubesats uh, for the Institute itself, we are uh, the principal investigator of a mission called Cubix. Uh, this will measure X-rays from the solar flares. Uh, so uh, the CUSP mission will measure the particle radiation, the charged particle radiation. Cubix will measure X-rays from the solar flares. So it's a different aspect of space weather, of course. And then ICOVEX, which is being built in San Antonio, uh, will study the effects of space weather in the Earth's upper atmosphere or ionosphere. Um, ultimately, we need a bunch of these CubeSats across, distributed across uh, interplanetary space in the Earth system, near Earth system, so that we can uh, have uh, these CubeSats can track, monitor, and ultimately we need these data to be fed into models uh, that can predict uh, how severe a solar storm and, and its radiation effects could be on Earth, as well as if we are ever to go deep space uh, in, into Mars in the next 10 years, then we would need that, all that information to be available to us at an instance so that we can make these predictions and take uh, uh, precautions. All right, so this is really the first seed of what will be, or what you know you hope to see in the future is a network of space weather stations that's, uh, I guess like a, will be constantly relaying this um, useful data back. Yes, uh, so uh, uh, part of the challenge of the CubeSats is if you put them too far away, they, the, the radios are not powerful enough to communicate beyond a certain distance. So we need to uh, put a, a big mothership kind of uh, situation where all the CubeSats are, are communicating with so that there's only one 
uh, mothership that communicates the data back to uh, back to Earth, as opposed to old CubeSats doing their own communications individually, mm -hmm. because that could take. Uh, I think the the deep space network would be overwhelmed. It's already oversubscribed, uh, so that that's just to make life easy, you'd want to do something like that uh, to have one mothership and twenty five other CubeSats uh, talking to the mothership, and only the mothership talks to us. So, Mahir, when possible, we like to know a little bit about the person behind the science. So, how did you become interested in studying space weather and what was your path to this field? So, um, I actually started out by studying electrical engineering, uh, but I didn't really like the fact that the field was just applied mathematics and applied physics. So, I decided to pursue a more pure field, uh, that of mathematics and physics, obviously. Um, so. After that, after my undergrad, I worked on uh, Jupiter's magnetosphere for my dissertation topic. And then I went to European Space Agency in Holland as a postdoctoral researcher to work on solar and interplanetary particles. That's when I really uh, appreciated or started getting into space weather because it uh, allows studying space weather and understanding it allows me to do science that has the potential of providing you know, immediate benefits to humanity. So that's that was the motivation for why I, I went to do space weather. Uh, I wanted to study space weather. Uh, after Holland, uh, I went to University of Maryland to continue studying solar particles. At that time, the Maryland group had pioneered a novel measurement technique that enabled mass spectrometry to measure a composition of matter in interplanetary space at very, very low energies, which is the seed material that I talked about that's being accelerated. Uh, and I wanted to learn and work with the best scientists and engineers in the field at that time, and which is why I am now at Southwest Research Institute. I really like that you said that you wanted to uh, be in this field because you saw it as a way to provide immediate benefits to humanity. And uh, I, you know, I always like to point out in our episodes that that is the SWRI mission, research and development to benefit humankind, definitely part of our mission. So uh, interesting path there. So I, I wanna go back to launch day coming up. Um, you'll be in Florida, is that correct? Yes. Okay, so uh, walk us through that day. You're gonna wake up, are you gonna, are you gonna do any um, you know, last minute checks of anything? Or are you purely just gonna you know, go to the site and watch? What does that day look like for you right now? Well, it, it could be night. We don't really know when, when they launch, the launch window itself. I don't know what that is. It could be midnight. It could be 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, whenever. And it could be sometime in the daytime as well. So uh, depending on, on when it is, you know, either I'll not go to sleep or I'll wake up very early. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that's okay. Uh, uh, and we... Uh, we'll be in in a in a VIP area where we'll have a, a sort of like a, you know very close up view of the launch itself. So hopefully we'll we'll be uh, all there. And with the, uh, my family is planning to go along with uh, two of uh, the, the other scientists that I work with on Cusp. So uh, we won't do any checks because we'll uh, the the whole. Uh, uh, spacecraft and everything else will be on the launch pad uh, a day before or two days before. I can't. I don't know exactly when, and it will, nobody will be allowed to go there. So um, yeah, we'll just be looking at looking at it in awe from afar, basically. Okay, it's going to be a, a huge event, and how amazing that you get to be a part of it. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. So. Uh, really amazing, and that's exciting that your family gets to join you to see that. So I bet everyone's excited. 
Yes, um, they are. <laughs> um, so what do you envision as the HUSP mission's lasting contributions to the space community and as we mentioned to humanity, what will be the lasting impact? So besides besides the the progress in the in the three science areas that I talked about, you know, what material, how it's accelerated, how it gets to us, you know, as of now, our ability to understand, monitor, predict space weather is is very, very uh, primitive. It's in the same state as our terrestrial weather prediction capability in the 40s and the 30s and the 40s. We have a few satellites that are scattered in space, uh, pretty much according to the science mission's requirements. There is no coordinated constellation uh, that can track and, and monitor the space weather. Um, so, you know, our ability to predict space weather and effects effects on Earth is 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 just, as I said, very limited right now. Um, and we are trying to do predictions from a single spacecraft located somewhere uh, that is uh, not quite appropriate for what we want to do. So we are hoping that with the launch of CUSP, uh, NASA can actually uh, uh, start thinking about launching uh, mission after mission uh, in and form a constellation uh, that will uh, allow us to uh, make measurements um, uh, across the entire interplanetary space to form like a string of pearls in interplanetary space to provide the 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 multi point measurements that are needed to improve our space with the modeling and prediction cap capabilities. So I'm I'm expecting CUSP to be the first of many. Okay, we're excited for you. Bottom line, the findings of this mission will benefit us all and provide insight uh, to avoid disruptions on Earth caused by space weather. So I'm really looking forward to all it will uncover. We'll be following it closely. Thank you for helping us understand CubeSats, Mahir. Best of luck to the CUSP team on the launch and the mission. Thank you for having me. Pleasure talking to you. And thank you to our listeners for learning along with us today. You can hear all of our Technology Today episodes and see photos and complete transcripts at podcast.swri.org. Remember to share our podcast and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Want to see what else we're up to? Connect with Southwest Research Institute on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Check out the Technology Today magazine at technologytoday.swri.org. And now is a great time to become an SWRI problem solver. Visit our career page at swri.jobs. Ian McKinney and Brian Ortiz are the podcast audio engineers and editors. I am producer and host Lisa Pena. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.